because I am going to give a talk on dependent origination, which is probably the most complex teachings in the Eightfold Path, part of right view or right understanding. And I'm giving it because I'm so inspired myself around the sort of sequencing that we've been following um, between um, you know, not taking things personally, renunciation, and feelings, like that sort of sequencing. And dependent origination is a really detailed account of how is the sense of self created and what role does feeling play in that. Yeah? And um, when we talk about renunciation and clinging, well, and the relationship between feeling and clinging, this really expands that relationship. And we've been sitting some of us have been sitting together for 19 years. Yeah? What do you think, Annie? More than that. More than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're all really ready for um, dependent origination. I can't tell. I can in any No, no, it's on. It's, right, it's here. Is it not high enough, Mel? No. It's not high enough. Yeah. How's that? No. Is that better? No? no? That's no good? How's this? Oh, it's not that. Where's it coming from? Where's it supposed to be coming from? That's right here. How about now? How's that? Is that better? Great, great, lovely. So, independent origination links what we've been talking about feeling and clinging to how a sense of self is created. And so when we talk about um, identity and the imprisonment of self, it's hard to understand it and to relinquish it, at least this is true for me, without really understanding the whole sequencing of it. And it really dependent origination pulls together also the role of ignorance in that and how deeply central it is in another way. And, um, and then I wanted to also acknowledge Christina Feldman because there are very traditional descriptions of dependent origination which didn't really illuminate the dynamics for me at all. And she... she um, uh, gave a lecture at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and it was from that lecture that a lot of these notes have been taken that I'm going to refer to. 
So dependent origination is a description of a coming together of 12 particular conditions. It is not linear and it is not deterministic. It's like a rainbow, light and moisture and whatever else, sun, sun, <laughs> light and moisture, well that's light, light, moisture and whatever else comes together to build a rainbow or snow, like temperature, right, moisture, wind maybe, whatever those factors are, that something doesn't come about until these particular conditions come into being and that's true for dependent origination. So even though I'm going to describe it in a linear fashion, it isn't linear. It is conditions coming together. And so the 12 links or the conditions that come together are ignorance, karmic formation, consciousness, mental and physical existence called Nama Rupa, the six sense bases, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, birth and death. Not birth as in our, our lives, although that is the traditional um, explanation as being born, being born into our life, but birth of the sense of identity and self. And then death here <coughs> is the death of that, that particular moment of creating self, and then the other arising. DJ. Can you just read it again? Certainly. It's in my book, too. Oh, yes, okay. it's in my book, my great book. I had to even get my book. Okay. Ellen helped me, I couldn't find it, to... Um, to uh, get exactly that list, so it's there. But would you like me to read it again anyway? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Ignorance. Karmic formation. Karmic formation. Karmic formation. And I'll explain these. Consciousness. Mental and physical existence, phys physicality and the mind, is another way to say The six sense organs, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, birth and death. Death of the cycle of that particular becoming. Oh, well, I forgot the first page. Never mind. <laughs> oh, unless it's in here. What's lovely about dependent origination is that it counters the misunderstanding that things just happen. Do you know that book, Things Happen to Good People, Bad Things Happen to Good People? It counters that misunderstanding. 
that conditions are random and just happen and that it's bad luck. And, um, uh, and that therefore we don't have any agency in creating beneficial conditions in that, in that misunderstanding. So what is ignorance? And we have talked about it a lot, right? The inherited stories and views about where happiness is. And that those stories are rooted in confusion. So the traditional, and you've heard me say this, the traditional definition of ignorance is not understanding the Four Noble Truths. Right? That there is suffering, there is a cause of it, there is an ending of it, and there is a path leading to the ending of it. It is described as perceiving the unsatisfactory as satisfactory. So just a simple example is when I was um, doing a three-month retreat at home, this was in, I can't remember when, the 90s maybe, or maybe, no, it was in the 2000s. Anyway, I was doing this three-month retreat at home, and I, I didn't see anyone for those three months. I mean, that was like really a solo retreat. And I would sit in my living room, and I would get compulsive about redesigning my living room because I couldn't sit until the picture makes laughing. Because I went to, when I stay at her home, I'm redesigning her living room. So <laughs> the tradition continues. So it, so I would buy sit and I'd feel like something is wrong, and I, it it would be such a great example of getting totally caught in this fantasy of fixing things to make it just right so I could meditate. You know, and I would get up and I would move the picture and then the bookshelf was in the wrong place. And so, so, so it was really great. This... <laughs> Where, where, where does satisfaction lead? Thinking that the unsatisfactory will actually lead us to satisfaction, one of the expressions of ignorance. And then the other is the mistaken belief that if we armor ourselves and defend ourselves, we will be happy especially against the world, like that sense of I have to protect myself, not through wisdom or, or um, appropriate action, but that sense of, do you know when someone says something to you and you feel hurt, and then you're like, okay, that's it for the friendship. I'm not calling her back. <laughs> that kind of armor. And then... And then, of course, everything that comes from it. The ways then we will have conversations when we, where we defend ourselves, right? So, um, and um, 
And then um, seeing the impermanent as permanent, especially in moments of pleasure. But uh, of course, generally, um, the um, amazing teaching our bodies give us around that and that continual surprise (laughs) (laughs) that you know that our bodies are losing strength or muscle or capacity to eat foods that we were able to eat in our I I traveled all through Africa and ate everything when I was in my 20s and now I can't even eat some of this food you know just the ways that we um, uh, uh, live in the misunderstanding that things will stay the same. And then, um, it, it, this is very close to it, but seeing the beautiful in the unbeautiful. And there's a classic story of a very, very beautiful artisan who also had some beautiful paramis in her mind and heart, who went to see the Buddha. And um, the Buddha saw that the one place that was obstructing her awakening process was seeing the beautiful in the unbeautiful, that is, in seeing her own attractiveness um, in, and her beautiful body. Apparently, she was very exquisite and very sought after and a quite renowned courtesan and very wealthy because she was so sought after. There's a big backstory. And the Buddha, through his psychic abilities, projected um, into the air an image of her aging and her wrinkles developing and her breast sagging and her losing teeth and hair. And she saw her own body in the aging process and unhooked. She stopped seeing the beautiful and the unbeautiful. And then the last thing, and this is probably one of the the deepest things because it covers everything, is how we project our well-being onto things. Relationships, people, experiences that sense of our well-being being dependent on other things, other people, and situations. Believing the self to be enduring and solid. So in misunderstanding the collection of ourselves as an aggregate, we continue to do and say things that keep supporting the sense of self. This this infuses every moment in the mind that doesn't have mindfulness. So in the group sharing, we were talking about movies and aversive personalities. Rarely, though, we could say that 
in watching a, in watching a movie and then talking about it afterwards when there wasn't mindfulness that momentum of critiquing was asserting the self right it was talking and behaving to assert and support and grow the sense of self and that 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 is cycle after cycle after cycle so um, and right um, so we're not seeing things as they actually are basically um, we are rather not seeing perceiving um, reality and ourselves through a distortion right from the beginning um, of I am like this, the world is like this, you are like that, the world is like that. So, um, so what ignorance is actually doing is organizing ourselves around these mistaken beliefs and attitudes and misunderstandings <coughs> and brings this into the world. And that's what the, um, the 12 dependent um, links are. Not, they, not that it always begins with ignorance, but there's always ignorance there in those coming together of the conditions. This, it organizes, it's not like passive, it's an organizing active principle that constructs, that brings these things together, all these misunderstandings, and constructs the world in, um, and that, that construction then begins to be acted out in all the other sequences. That's why it's so important to spend quite a lot of time naming ignorance, because it's there in every moment of consciousness, where there aren't the beautiful mental factors. <clears throat> so, then, in that... Um, in, in the first step of karmic formations, it's bringing together our particular story, what we've experienced in our past, the messages we've had, the um, values that we've learned, the prejudices, everything that we've in inherited. And that, that um, ignorance moves in a particular impulse to begin to collect itself in the expression of the mind and intention. So, for example, I, you know, I lived some time in England, and like here, it's baseball. But I didn't really grow up with baseball, but I did grow up with football and the different teams. And so, it was so clear walking into the pub where we often, that's where we watch games, right? In the pub, was you could just feel from ignorance this movement in karmic formation 
as a team, you could feel it in the energy of the pub, as one particular team came on the screen. And before anyone said something, you could feel the energy of that intention of some people moving into expression, right? That, that, that conditioning of this is my team, I'm a Manchester United fan, this is part of my identity. You could feel the movement of that energy. So that it's the first organizing principle out of ignorance <coughs> towards this creation, um, according to all the habits. And then that karmic formation and intention brings consciousness into being. This consciousness being the kind of consciousness that I've um, that I've um, uh, talked about as, you know, like coming, 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 you know, just like moments of consciousness, moments of consciousness. So this, the consciousness comes into being with ignorance and karmic formation that draws consciousness into being. This general, <coughs> the general orientation then. So we're in the pub, Manchester United is, is playing and you know we're all in our tables talking and consciousness already infused with that identity is moving towards seeing and hearing, right? It's that orientation towards something out of ignorance and karmic formation. So we think that when we hear something um, or we notice something that it's neutral, but it's already, but it's not neutral. It's already determined much of the time, not every single time, but much of the time. And out, out of the, uh, out of consciousness, which is already flavored by um, uh, ignorance and comic formation, comes an embodiment more, an embodiment of those energies. So the body is now moving more. From talking in a group in the pub, now we're all swiveling to the screen. It takes formation in the body and it takes more formation in the mind. There's more orientation towards the screen and the building of that identity. And then, of course, next comes the six sense doors. Sight, sound, taste. There's all those come into being. And from that is contact then. Okay, then it's that propulsion to two particular contacts, eyes, sound, maybe eyes in the beginning, looking at the screen. It comes into the visual field. And it's pleasant. There's Manchester United playing on, on the screen. So there's the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So not that pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is coming into a field that is free of everything. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is happening in this whole field already, right? It's stacked, basically. <coughs> and then out of, uh, so out of that feeling, of course, is, um, let's see if I have anything here that's different. 
So, so, um, uh, so Christina, Christina says something really different. It's great about feeling. She says the impact of feeling is that it is the basis of all emotion. Don't think of it as neutral because that doesn't accurately describe what's going on. Is the basis of all emotions. All emotions. Yeah. That it's this ground spring of, of all the different emotions. Um, so and um, and so from feeling, then from feeling, perception is altered. Like this, this is pleasant, and perception sees the object as as determinant of one's happiness. And that's the precondition for clinging, desire and clinging. Yeah. So this part feels so important because what the whole movement is, it's so sad, what the whole movement is that is that we lose our agency. Then, not intentionally, but we are empowering this thing, Manchester United, or whatever it is, to make us happy. And that. And in that movement, because that's what clinging does, clinging is the movement out of relatedness into a narrow focus and a grasping of the thing. So whenever we're in addiction, in those moments, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, we're always isolated because we are moved outside of the network. And the opposite too, depression. It's the same thing. Whatever it is, we're moved outside of the environment of okay. mutuality. Marina, you said um, the movement out of relationship into a grasping of an object. In this case, Manchester United. Because <coughs> I mean, it it is a trip. Sometimes, like you know, when I I don't sleep a lot, so. Sometimes they put on YouTube, and I'm like, what can I watch that'll be somewhat entertaining but will also be boring? And I think to myself, okay, I'll watch a tennis match. <laughs> and so I'll just like put on the Davis couple, no, that's golf, one of the Wimbledon. And someone will be playing someone. And I'll decide who I want to win, not knowing any of them. And I'll be, and I'll be like, I can't believe you, I can't believe you missed that. <laughs> and it's just the mind, when there isn't mindfulness, grasping onto an object, a person I don't even know, who now I want to win, because that's 
what I've already constructed will give me pleasure, without any basis in reality. I know nothing about them. I mean, at least if it was Serena Williams, I would know. She's a good tennis player. Or Vanessa. Anyway, so this movement and um, uh, so then out of this clinging what happens is that we create a momentum of fixed positions things become good or bad worthy or unworthy valuable or valueless the world often is organized into friends, enemies, opponents, right, allies, according to what we've become attached to. And, um, you know, and when I, you know, when I heard of some of the people that Trump has chosen to fill positions in the cabinet, it's very organized around this principle and and, and he did the same thing I did with tennis. He chose people he didn't even know that well and then became very invested in them. Like the, um, the person he, he ended up firing. His name I can't remember. He's lost a number of them. He's lost a number of them. And this we all doing this, we're all doing this, creating friends, enemies, allies, people we want around us, people we don't want around us, and what makes us secure out of this distorted perception. And, and that we need it. And I'm, I keep going back to sport because it's so easy to see the creation of it, of how angry you know, um, fans become when their teams lose. Like, I needed you to win. Yeah? How are you doing? Fine. Any, any, any questions? We're holding back. Roll it back. No, we're holding back. Oh, you're holding back. Because you asked it. Oh, no, no, I said it's fine, just not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, but go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I, I got a little lost. And maybe because we got to clinging mm -hmm. and it went kind of fast. Okay. From six senses to feeling to perception. And anyway. Just, so yeah, from really fast for me. six the sixth sense space to contact. To contact. That's it. You make contact with the object, whatever the object is: taste, smell, visual object. Um, thought is a contact of the mind. It's a sense space, and out of that then comes the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral whenever there's contact. And out of that comes clinging, when it's pleasant or aversion, which is just the opposite of what I'm saying. Um, clinging or aversion, it's the same thing. I need this, I don't need that. 
Yes. Are you going to come to a place where you just give us some examples of how we make use of this? Well, I thought I was already. So, um, you know, in our thinking about what's happening, So in any situation, you know, in any situation where you, where you are experiencing anything, when there isn't mindfulness, this is going on with any contact. Sometimes it's not so strong, but in any moment of experience, when there isn't mindfulness, there's ignorance operating and it's operating out of these energies. You know, so it might be how you're cutting wood for your, for your property management job and the way you're cutting it. When there isn't awareness, all these things are coming into play, like some kind of tension around, you know, um, the ways that you want people to see you as a good manager. And so the different ways that you are um, um, working to make that happen, yeah? energetically, through your actions. So when you don't make a good cut with the saw, it isn't just, oh, not a good cut, but there's all this intensity of uh, good and not good in the context that this is the type of person I am, this is what I need. Arena, you once took us through all the links of dependent origination at Cloud Mountain using a crush. Yes. yes. You yes. stood up and walked around. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yes. A crush? A crush. On a, a crush. A crush on a girl. Yeah. A crush on a girl. Oh, That's oh. right. So That's Marina, right. It was you, brilliant. In your example of the tennis match, yes. if you had had mindfulness present, you would wouldn't have um, latched on to no. wanting one exactly. person to win. Exactly. Exactly. It would have been the game as it was played out with compassion for both players. But say all those karmic formations were already there and you, you have a, a preference for brunettes rather than blondes and all of this is going on, where does mindfulness cut that? It can intervene it at any point. It can intervene it at the very initiation of why am I switching the TV on or why am I turning towards the computer? It could have, I could have intervened then. What is my mind state that I'm escaping, right? Mm -hmm. Searching for some kind of ease from insomnia. It could have been as I chose the person that looked like the person I wanted to win, as I singled out an object through contact because one person was more pleasant than the other. So, so, in any of those places, I could have intervened. So, when you intervene, do you somehow play the tape backwards and go back, or do you just go back you could. and just jump right back to mindfulness? You could. You could do either. 
you could backtrack because you want to acknowledge what that initial impulse was. Or you could say, that's it, here's my breath. Either, either is good. So that's why you're saying it's not linear. Exactly, exactly. You can intervene at any point, right, right, right. And we can, we can, you know, um, It could be, it could be that a moment of pleasure is just pleasure in one bite of something, and then we have another bite, and the second bite of pleasure begins the cycle, just from pleasure, and it brings everything else into being. You know, then there's clinging, then there's becoming, and then that triggers ignorance. So any point at any point, everything, it can pull in everything else. It doesn't always have to be, doesn't always have to start at ignorance. That's why it's so challenging. Yes. To recognize. Yes. Yeah. What's the death piece of it? I'm coming. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so there, so, there are four kinds of clinging, but I'm not going to go into that in detail because we know those already. Clinging to sense pleasures, to opinions and beliefs, to rites and rituals. This is the right way to do it and this is the wrong way to do it. You know, like... Um, um, <clears throat> how they lay the table here of the way they place things, it's definitely the wrong way because it's so squished. You know, just like, don't you know that when you do this, you should do it this way? That kind of thing, right? It could be around anything, rites and rituals. So. And of course, clinging to opinions and beliefs is, um, I just did the two-week retreat at Dharmadena and a student picked me up from the airport and mentioned something about something, we mentioned something about Israel. She said something about Israel and how she didn't believe in the boycott. And I found myself getting into an argument <laughs> right there after a two-week retreat about boycotting Israel. And I was like, I can't believe I got sucked into that. <laughs> but, but it was that, it, it was so lovely because it was a mo, I saw it afterwards, uh, that her argument, it triggered my identity as an activist. It wasn't just here is a perspective. It's her perspective triggered a sense of identity as that is the wrong perspective, opinion, and belief about Israel. Well, it was great. So great to see what was so, the fourth? What? What's the fourth kind of thing? Um, to, a, to an eye, to a self. <clears throat> so, um, 
says, so this is what Christina says about clinging, which I love. She says, the Buddha calls one fortunate attachment or clinging the clinging for freedom. And she says, everyone has a longing for freedom and intimacy and oneness, and a longing to be free of limitations. Um, and that this sacred hunger gets diverted through ignorance into craving. So we need to free ourselves from the delusion that's associated with craving so we can come back to our sacred hunger. That desire for freedom gets also diverted by all the attachments, by our attachments to rules and rituals. If I do it this way, I will get further on the path, you know? And so we also have to let go of our attachment to pathways and models in Buddhism. Um, and she says that we have <coughs> this, that as long as we're trying to meet our appetite through craving, we're diverting the energy of freedom, of wanting freedom. And that's why it's so important to liberate ourselves from the cycles of craving and, and clinging. And, um, and then, lastly, there's the clinging of um, the notion of I am, and that sense of I need to make things happen. I need to organize the world in order that I can create an ideal self acceptable to myself and the world. And, um, and that I have to keep working on it in the belief that finally the self I create will be okay, which of course it never is. So we spend all our time organizing and trying to create this acceptable or perfect self. Perfect and acceptable for ourselves and perfect and acceptable for others as well. So then, so, um, so then out of clinging and organizing the self to become acceptable and to keep on perfecting it and perfecting it and using the practice to do that, right? We're constantly um, being um, challenged by the teachings to be careful in how we're meditating so that we're not meditating to become a more acceptable self, but that we're meditating to free ourselves. And that's, you know, the seduction that I talked about with Joseph Goldstein of, oh, this is bliss, I'm finally acceptable. My experiences are pleasant. Oh, this is the self I want to create and hold on to, right? The perfect meditator, blissful self. So then the last two steps are becoming the entire process of 
really fixing the self in a particular state and, ex and experience of I am this loving person or angry per per um, person and um, then organizing all our beliefs around that. And so from that first set, the first sense of clinging of self and, and making a self, then, then the becoming is really fixing it, fixing it into being and, and creating this state of identity and that's the becoming. I am the lover, the sufferer, the doer, the thinker, that I amness uh, that ends the cycle. And then that I amness, I am so successful, right? I am so successful. So the, the whole um, Going back to the pub and the, the, the football match, you know, the win happens, we are the team that wins, I am a fan that wins, but then the next game, Manchester United loses. And so that's the death of that particular identity and because it dies, inevitably every identity does, that creation necessarily dies because circumstances change, we're in the cycle again. And so then there's even more impetus to become because that last becoming of, you, you know, Uni Manchester United is successful. <coughs> And, yes. Would you say all that discussion we had? I am an aversive friend personality. I am a blah 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 personality. Don't you think that's becoming? Don't you think that? If you if you use it that way, totally, it can be becoming, or you can use it as a description of patterns that arise and bring mindfulness to it. Yes. Yes. So because we're almost at an hour, and I know an hour is is always too long and I always ask you to hang out here for an hour. Let me, I just want to read a story of the opposite. I love the story and I want to read it as an opposite of what happens when there is an ignorance. Okay, some of you have heard this story. During the early weeks of the Iraq war, the television set in my office was tuned all day to CNN with the sound muted. On the morning of April the 3rd, as the army and the marines were closing in on Baghdad, I happened to look up at what appeared to be a disaster in the making. A small unit of American soldiers was walking along a street in Najaf when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of the building on either side. Fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the Americans who glanced in one another in terror. I reached for the remote and turned up the sound. The Iraqis were shrieking, frantic with rage. From the way the lens was lurching, the cameraman seemed as frightened as the soldiers. This is it, I thought. A shot will come from somewhere, 
the Americans will open fire and the world will witness another My Lai massacre in the Iraq war. And I wanted to I, um, talk about one of the demonstrations I just went to and the Oakland police in, you know, just like masses of them, fully armed, shields, armored cars, and us demonstrators coming along, and I could feel, I could feel that tension and just what they're talking about, the sense you could feel the identity of the soldiers. This is our job. We're being hired to protect and to quell this demonstration. This is the demonstrators. We are, you know, I won't say we, many demonstrators enraged with what's coming down around immigration and already so many forced separations and arrests. Okay. At that moment, an American officer stepped through the crowd, holding his rifle high over his head with the barrel pointed to the ground. Against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a striking gesture, almost biblical. Take a knee, the officer said, impassive, behind surface sunglasses. The soldiers looked at him as if he were crazy. <coughs> then one after another, swaying in their bulky body armor and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns at the ground. The Iraqis fell silent. Their anger subsided, and the officer ordered his men to withdraw. This was Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes. That's the interruption, right? When you're in a situation, there's no identity of, I'm an American soldier, you're coming towards us as the enemy, raise your guns, shoot, right? And um, we've seen that happen at Kent State. We've seen it happen over and over again, that sense of identity, armored, protection of the self and the immediate use of violence. Not because the person is bad, just because they're in the cycle, right? And what happens when we're not in the cycle, which is no need to defend or protect in those old ways. What, because there was mindfulness there, because there was caring there, what is the most appropriate action to diffuse this? So the expression of caring and mindfulness, bring the gun up, turn it down towards the ground, order your officers to do the same. Kneel in front of the Iraqis. So beautiful. That's the power when we interrupt the cycle. And what's beautiful about it is that all the soldiers follow. So, um, the, 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 the um, Dan Baum, the um, 
person writing this article went in search of this guy, Chris Hughes, and um, found him. And he said he wanted to know who had taught him to do that. And um, he's, Chris Hughes said his question didn't make sense. In an unassuming, persistent Iowa tone, he assured me that nobody had prepared him for an angry crowd in an Arab country, much less all the tribal complexities of that town. He said army officers learn in a general way to use a helicopter rotor wash to drive away a crowd, or they fire warning shots. Problem with that is that the next thing you have to do is shoot them in the chest. So um, he said, I knew what I needed was to give the Iraqis a sign of respect. And that's what he did. So all of this is to say again, all of this saying how how sacred, how important mindfulness is because it's mindfulness that intervenes. And as we name this, you know, when you say, well, you know, how can I use it? That, for me, it's that some sense of initial contraction in anything I'm doing some sense of initial contraction in my body, that kind of momentum, that, that contraction that tells me I'm moving towards creating some sense of identity in the moment, whatever, whatever it is, you know, and, um, and, um, and I, I used to really notice it meditating when you know, I'd be sitting like this and I'd realize it and then I'd be like, you can't sit like this. Well, of course I can. You know, it, it, you know, it really doesn't make that much difference actually to my mind moment whether I'm like this or whether I'm like this. But it was like, no, I'm, I'm like a teacher. I'm a meditator. You know? <laughs> and, and I can just notice before I make the movement that, that just that that. It's a contraction. The impulse comes from a contraction to sit up straight. Just the, the sensitivity of noticing as we stay connected with our bodies, those movements into creating something. And I could just frame it as I want to sit up straight because that's healthy, but that isn't it at all, really. It's because I think I should as an old meditator, not be like this. We're just doing it all the time. We're doing it all the time. How we walk, how we eat, how we say hi to people, how are you, how are you? Like when it's so, someone I don't know, I'm like, you know, a neighbor, how are you? I'm like immediately presenting something. And it's so conditioned a kind of neighborly friendliness, you know? But that's not better. I mean, we have to be in the world. Yeah, but I could just be like, I could just 
be more genuine, actually. <laughs> so not say anything to them if you don't think you're gonna, I mean, then you get into preferences or whatever. Well, I mean, it, you know, yeah, if I'm really feeling like I can't or don't want to, but I mean genuine in the sense of if I'm genuine caring, then trust that my genuine caring will express itself rather than just the subtle holding of my body in a particular way. You know, just those subtle ways that we build identities of I'm a friendly neighbor. Not that it's bad, but just that it actually is a kind of armoring in a way. So. You didn't really get into why this isn't deterministic. You, you, at the beginning you said um, that it's not deterministic. Because each one crea can create the conditions for the next to come into being, but it can also be intervened. If it was deterministic, then it would, we couldn't intervene at any stage, but we can intervene at any stage and stop it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel so enthusiastic about the cycle, as you can tell, because it helps us to name it and, and perceive it and interrupt it. And I really appreciate you listening to it. Let's just take a moment to acknowledge that the Dharma has been shared. <laughs>